Hey everyone, welcome back to the Camera Books Podcast Above and Beyond. Very special episode. For this one, I have the pleasure of interviewing Corey Balk. Corey is a regional business director at Johnsonville Sausage. He is a Camera Brooks alumnus from November 1999, and he's just got a great background. Graduated from Navy. He was a Naval Flight Officer, went back to teach leadership at the Naval Academy before transitioning, launched his business career in marketing. And it's just a really fun episode because we cover a lot of ground. You know, he talks about his interaction and working multiple times with Roger Cameron. And so I think that's just interesting to hear for those of you who never had the opportunity and pleasure to meet Roger and work with Roger. He gives some great insight into working with Roger Cameron and, and what Roger was like when he was helping military officers transition back then. But we, you know, we talk about a lot about managing your career you know he's been at a few different companies continuing to rise to higher levels of leadership so we talk about managing your career of course Corey's an author he wrote the book lens of leadership being the leaders others want to follow and so we talk about how that all came about um, why he wrote the book how he wrote the book the things that he was focused on when he was trying to convey this message of leadership which by the way i put a link to the book in the uh in the description, awesome, awesome leadership book for those of you who are really into it. And we start even talking about that. We talk about professional development, talk about books to to read and focus on. He even, he even gives some excellent recommendations for some podcasts that he's really into that he is still using and learning from. So I'm just really excited to bring this episode to you. And uh, my hope is that you just take a ton away from it. His bio, by the way, is also in the show notes. If you want to just read a little bit more about who he is and what he's been up to, you can find him there. Of course, I linked his LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well. So excellent conversation with Corey. Very grateful. As a matter of fact, we plan to have him back. We're going to do another episode down the road focused mostly or focused mainly on, um, on his book. But for now just kind of walking through who he is and what he's been up to over the years. And so great conversation with Corey, really honored and grateful that he spent some time with us today. So without further ado, here's Corey. All right, Corey, thank you so much for being a part of the Kevin Rooks podcast and taking time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with us today. Great to be here, Pete. Uh, Cameron Brooks has meant so much to me uh, uh, in my transition, and I'm happy to be here and, and uh, great to be with the CB team again. The neat thing about this conversation will be, you know, most of the people that we interview and kind of do the alumni conversations um, uh, have been out of the military now, some some as early as three or four years, maybe, you know, maybe a little bit longer than that. But we have very few episodes where someone has risen to higher levels of leadership and kind of done the whole developmental career track. And so I'm excited to hear more about it. And maybe we start there. So you made the move in 99, but maybe back us up from there. What'd you do in the Navy? Uh, why did you choose General Mills and how did that all work out for you? Sure, sure. So I um, I was a Naval Academy grad, uh, went there, for, raised in rural Michigan, uh, went to the Naval Academy, sucked the life out of that place, just did everything <laughs> they let me raise my hand for, jumped out of planes, went to Navy dive school, all kinds of great summer programs and studied overseas, just everything they'd let me do, I'd raise my hand. Then selected Naval Flight Officer and was a P-3 Orion Naval Flight Officer. And that was a flying all around the world. I made three full deployments, three full six-month deployments. 
and that uh, a winter in Iceland, uh, eight months chasing drug smugglers around the Caribbean, and then a final deployment flying over Bosnia every day. Uh, and then by that time, I knew for family reasons that I wanted to make my transition uh, out of the military it, it, for reasons that were uh, a, a bit of a paradox. I mean, it broke my heart to want to leave, but I, I needed, you know, for my family uh, situation, I needed to get out. And my roommate, uh, my Naval Academy roommate, was one of Cameron Brooks's first five people that uh, they placed in marketing at General Mills. Gotcha. And he said, hey, Corey, you should talk to these Cameron Brooks people, but, uh, you know, they're pretty selective and you're kind of, you know, you're you. So good luck. <laughs> and uh, so then I really uh, uh, I started and I treated it professionally like any military attrition program. I just put my heart and soul into being accepted. I had my interview with Roger and then an interview with Chuck, I believe and then got into the program. And I was in a unique position where Roger uh, said, if, if you know you're getting out, uh, the military is gonna want you to go do this thing that's great for your Naval Flight Officer career, which is for us is go back to the RAG and be an instructor. Mm -hmm. And he said, but if you wanna transition, you need a plan for getting uh, your career on track with a business degree. So, you, you know, let's talk about options. And I, I was able to get up to the Naval Academy and be a, an instructor at the Naval Academy and get my uh, my MBA on my own time. And so Roger was involved from the very beginning. Yeah. And then Roger would come to DC quite frequently. So I was getting Roger four or five times a year right. when I'd come in from DC and, right. and get sort of three years of coaching. Um, I, I'm glad you, that was a perfect segue, by the way, because I do want to ask you a little about a little bit about Roger. Roger, um, I, I, like you, had my first interview with Roger Cameron. And, uh, and it would, well, uh, he had some constructive criticism and feedback, which was just fine. Uh, and then, of course, he guided me through my conference. And I remember I was walking into my last interview. I was really interested in it. And I walked up to Roger, who was over the railing. And I said, uh, Roger, I'm going into the last one and feeling really good and really hoping I get this one. And he looks at me, he goes, you know, they're screening pretty tight, so you'll probably get a no. So just go in there and pretend like you're going to get a no and it'll be fine. And I was like floored by the advice, but I walked in. I'm like, okay, well, the guy knows what he's doing. And I got a yes. And so I thought like, wow, he is he is the master at interviewing. And so any any uh, any similar or, or any Roger stories to share? I, I have such great affection for Roger and Renee. Yes. They, I just had complete confidence. Um, what did I jot down here? So he, he so I, uh, you got to know a little bit about my background. I was raised by a single mom in rural Michigan. Mom worked a metal lathe on second shift my whole upbringing. And I was raised to go get a steady job. Corey, go get a job with benefits and you'll be safe. You know, that kind of thing. And and going into the military was perceived as safe, even though I was <laughs> and stuff. But, but that was, the military was a good benefits. You know, you'll be comfortable. You'll be safe there. And so when I was leaving the military, when I told my parents I wanted to leave the military, um, they were like, oh, no, that business world is so this and it's so that. So my transition, the reason I mentioned that is because my transition was burdened, if you will, by two things. One was my the context of my upbringing. A business is difficult and unsure. And then sudden, uh, uh, subsequently as well, I still think there's a misunderstanding within the military about what business is and what business means. And And Roger, my time with Roger completely made me believe that the civilian world would be filled with competent leaders and companies that were doing noble, important things, and that my leadership could help them achieve those things and could be very gratifying, just like the military had been. And 
Milwaukee was a little bit like, um, so I live in Wisconsin now. And so we're all in on Vince Lombardi, as you can imagine. So a lot of our great quotes come from Vince. And there's a quote that when he was welcoming his coaches and players back into training camp, and they were all men at the time, he would say, I don't always have to like my players and my coaches, but I must love them. And gentlemen, my love will be relentless. And <laughs> Roger was that I, I knew Roger cared about me, but I knew that care had some had some demands on me. And uh, he was just a coach that I wanted to satisfy. I never wanted to dis- disappoint him as a coach. And then when I transitioned to being a hiring, you know, when we would hire from Cameron Brooks, right. you know, that your relationship changes with Roger and Renee, and it just blossomed into that they're just such wonderful people, and um, they made such a difference in my life and Chuck and, and the team from back then. Well, I, I actually can see Chuck right over there, so I'll share that with him. I, I But I do see Roger Murnay in different settings uh, from time to time. So the next time I do see them, I will absolutely. Uh, Please do. And I hope, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if they listen to the podcast or not, but, uh, but I'll relay that. Um, think about, so let's talk about the conference for a moment. So think about you at the conference. So Roger... Gave, you know, you, you taught leader, you know, you had this great P3 experience, you taught leadership at the Naval Academy, comes to come to the conference and Roger saying to you like, hey, just be a leader and you'll be fine. But did you imagine or was it, did, was you, how good was your crystal ball back then that you could see kind of where you're at now looking back? So the preparation, I, I, as I went through that program, it began to build my confidence that if I just, like you said earlier, if I just do what he says, it's going to turn out great, right? So I just, my confidence built up, my skepticism went away, my confidence built up, and I just believed that if I did the program, if I did what they said, I would have a very, very uh, successful outcome. And the conference itself was so energizing. It was so filled of action and support by the Cameron Brooks team, of course. But the other candidates, the other spouses, I mean, it was just a whirlwind of a weekend that you're just completely mentally and emotionally exhausted, physically exhausted afterwards. But when it came out, uh, so I believed after that conference, I believed that I had done the right thing. I believed I was going to achieve, you know, as much as I wanted to, it was up to me to achieve and that I could be very successful in business. And um, it's funny, I got 14 out of 15 yeses out of the conference. And well, but I still think about that one rejection from time yeah. to time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny. I, I, I got. I didn't quite do that well, but I did okay. But I do tell the story of my that first rejection that I really wanted. By the way, I wonder if that was one that you really wanted. It was. It was a big name company. It was geographically closer to my family core. And uh, you know what? You can't second guess that stuff because where we are today is such a blessing. And, you know, uh, and it's funny how life works out. But 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 14 out of 15 and, and the team, I just I had my pick of a litter and my follow on interviews were so well orchestrated and and just set me up for just the path that I, I wandered. I went down. I did just have a conversation this morning with a person and we were talking about preparation. We were talking about the conference and, and that's really it, right? When, when you have that many companies pursuing you, you, you have this right of refusal. And it's interesting because we're sitting here talking about you at the conference, but, but you've been to many conferences as you as a hiring manager and being on the other side of that table, you know, you're pursuing some really good people, but they have just so many options. And so it is a little bit stacked in the in the in the favor of the candidate. Not that, yeah. It it, it and and I guess in this for this model, we almost want it to be that way. But to have these men and women who are just unsure about, like you said, like what's available to me, 
and having options. And so I'm, I do appreciate you saying that. I um, I wanted to follow up on one one. Well, let me ask you this: Why did why did you ultimately choose the company you chose? Coming from the conference, fourteen possibilities. Now I know you didn't do fourteen follow up interviews, but you probably did a handful. Um, why did you ultimately choose General Mills? So I have a, a great story around that. General Mills at the time was perceived as it was fairly new. You know, Jim Burney was the hiring guy, and he he really believed in JMOs. And uh, General Mills turned out to be such a blessing for me. But um, I had three different offers from Procter and Gamble. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say the companies, but but a world class you know company in three different disciplines. So I went back and had a good process there. My wife and I looked at houses during one of the follow ups. We found a house that I said it was a little bit of a commute, and and um, and this was this is how you've got to surround yourself with people who will give you lots of information from different perspectives. And my perspective at the time, being the candidate kind of caught up in all this, people like me, people like me, um, you know, <laughs> I said, if if we can live in this house, in this city and work for that company, then this is where we ought to be. And uh, um, my last interview was with General Mills and walking into General Mills was like walking into the law library at the University of Michigan. It was just the pedigree, uh, the, 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 the esteem, the caliber, and not that that's, um, um, the caliber is no different than P&G, both great companies, sure. right? Sure. Um, the personality was slightly different. And that's one thing that your JMO candidate should, uh, and I mentioned, or I jotted down notes for later on is, you are not, they're not just hiring you for your competency. They want that. Sure. But they want to believe you're a fit for their culture too. And for me at the time, one company was a little, one company was a better fit and that turned out right. to be General Mills. And when I, uh, I got there. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, please, please. At one point when I got there, within a couple of years of me getting there, we had 12, not just alum, we had 12 classmates of mine from the Naval Academy that all wow. worked at Mills. Right. And we had a 30 person lunch once a month that I'm, I'm kind of a social person. And I started this small lunch and it grew and it grew. And eventually I got a call from the number two guy, the secretary of the number two guy, the vice chairman of the company. And this was back when it was a 12, $13 billion company. And uh, it calls and says, uh, Steve DeMarin, uh understands there's a lunch of a bunch of former military officers meeting once a month. Would it be okay if Steve joined that? He had been a, uh, he had been a, a, a supply officer and he just wanted to one, reconnect with that veteran side of himself, but also kind of hear about the company from the deck plates and we were all from different disciplines within the company and right. so you we would we would have lunch once a month with the vice chairman so good i want to ask you about managing your career i think that is one of the challenges you know in the army we have a branch manager in the navy you have a detailer in the marine corps you have a monitor but we have these people that manage our careers for us and you know, you know, I know, I know. Right now, the army is making a move where you have a little bit more say, and you can kind of interview for jobs. And so they are making the move, and that's a good thing for talent management. But I think one of the hurdles that I that I when I interact with military officers is they're looking to make the move. One of the big hurdles is, you know, can you, you know, the it's a hurdle. But the question I get is, tell me what my career trajectory will be. I need to know, you know, by the day because in the military that we we have a by the day career trajectory. And so I'd love to hear some ideas about managing your career. I know I'm throwing a little bit of a curveball. Here's the curveball. Um, but before you do that, can you can you share with us your trajectory? I want, I want people to know what you've done, your path. And so, and then maybe we can follow up with, um, with some tips, some ideas about career management. 
Okay, great. Well, I, I transitioned to General Mills and was a, a, an associate or assistant marketing manager, which is that le- that entry level with an MBA. And, and General Mills and P&G and lots of great companies are a little bit like the military in that, you know, you, General Mills, you enter with a cohort, although GMOs, we often don't because the cohorts start when the MBA classes graduate, right? And we, we can be mid-year hires. Right. Um, but... Uh, um, but it's very expected. Hey, within two years, if you haven't made, you know, man, or I guess maybe it was four within four years, if you haven't made manager, you're behind the curve, that kind of thing, you know, just like in the military. Mm-hmm. And so my experience there was, uh, had first success, second success, and I got bit by the NASCAR bug. And, uh, so I went to go work at Newell Rubbermaid where I, I got involved with the corporate NASCAR program. And that was good for me in a way that it exposed me. Newell Rubbermaid was a conglomerate that had 28 divisions. So instead of having one brand or one one business to hawk, I was sort of satisfying 28 different division presidents and allocating a portion of our NASCAR program that their brands could participate in. So that exposed me just through kind of no, no just kind of blind luck. Uh, it was intentional, but there was this un, unexpected benefit of all of a sudden now I'm with with 28 division presidents and I've got the CEO of a seven or eight billion dollar company that, you know, knows my name and is calling me when his car isn't where he wants it to be and that kind of thing. And one of the stories from my book, one of the great lessons in followership came from that uh, um, that job. I realized I missed food marketing and I missed having a brand, right? Uh, and an opportunity came up at Johnsonville Sausage where I would have both the brand, the product, but also all the sports marketing and all the event marketing. And they were pretty, pretty uh, great programs. And so that, uh, and I missed food marketing because food is so much more intimate than hard goods. You know, people, people, moms, dad, people care about what they put in their body mm-hmm. a lot. So that got me to Johnsonville. I thought I'd stay three or four years mm-hmm. because marketers can be nomadic and military guys can tend to be nomadic. Mm-hmm. But we, we found a home here, the, the, the company, the uh, people, the ethos uh, is just very special. And I've had, uh, I've had uh, three different roles here. I was the Bratz brand manager. That was the one I came here for. Then it's a privately held, uh, family held company. And they realized at one point the owner said, we're, we're hiring too many of our leaders from outside the company. Corey, you used to teach leadership at the Naval Academy. Can you help us create a leader development program? And I said... I don't know, Ralph, but I'll sure try, <laughs> right? And, and so that got me into the human development side of things, uh, adult adult career development, leadership development, all of that. And I ended up uh, over time becoming the leader of that part under, under our HR VP of all the development, technical and career development. And it was during that time that I wrote my book. And Johnsonville is a very special place that leads me to the tighter answer to your question. Um, that gig... Uh, I was, I had a speech coming up in Taiwan and I reached out to our Asia team and said, Hey, I've got a gig in Taiwan. Will you look at my slides and make sure they're culturally appropriate? This was for my book. This was a personal thing. And uh, they said, sure, but if you're coming over here, you better spend time with us. And so I, I did, I spent some time with them and uh, uh, didn't know it at the time, but it was a kind of an interview. And when I got back, uh, we had an opening in this international team and, and they said, Hey, Corey didn't screw it up too bad when he was with us. Let's see if he wants the job. So my point there, sorry, Pete, for the wondering, but good, it is, is careers can be a jungle gym. It's not always a ladder. That's one thing I would say to your JO candidates is careers don't have to be a ladder. Sometimes they can be incredibly successful and rich, but be a little bit more like a jungle gym going from side to side. And it's my personal belief and philosophy that a career is something that happens in, 
eight to 10 year chunks. And if your eyes are open and you're paying attention and you're networking along those six to eight years, that can lead you to that next six, eight, 10 year gig. And, and if you keep your radar up during that time, that will lead to something. And for me, that's been the most enriching, you know, the most satisfying path. I know I sent you questions and we'll probably hit those, but there's a couple of things I need to follow up on because that's really okay. So, and I do say that like in my experience in corporate America, performance and networking are the keys, right? I mean, you can't be an underperformer and know the world and plan to move around, but performance networking are really the keys. So let's talk about the jungle gym. So you've taken two, or you've taken two steps at, um, at um, General Mills. And then you said you got bit by the NASCAR bug and there was a gig managing the NASCAR program at New Rubbermaid. And so how did that happen, right? That, that really the kind of the nitty gritty of that is the unknown, is the black box for military officers. Thinking, Great, you went from one company to another, but how did, okay, what, what did that, ha- how did that happen? Great to tease that out. So the, uh, my, my last brand at General Mills was the Chex cereal brand. Yep. And Chex cereal has a peak, like you can't believe, like probably maybe it may not be true anymore, but 65% of the business was in the months of November and December when people were using cereal to make their checks mix holiday mix. Right, right, right. And uh, and so my business was on the cereal side, not the snack side. Um, and we had uh, the number 43 Richard Petty, John Andretti car. And so I was, I explored, I didn't know anything about NASCAR. I had been raised in NASCAR. I wasn't a motorhead. But they said, hey, this NASCAR, and this is 90, no, this is 2001-ish, 2002-ish, when NASCAR is just on a rocket ship ride, right? Everybody, you know, it's 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 really blowing out its historical, you know, the, the, the people who are joining NASCAR is just really the companies, the brands. It's not just redneck stuff anymore. Right. And so I'm like, I don't know anything about this, but let me go meet this Richard Petty guy. <laughs> so so I, I get, yeah, so, so I spend a day with Richard and Kyle Petty. And we ended up putting together this great ad, their family heritage. Uh, I, I forget Richard's wife's name now, Pam or Pat. Uh, but when they would drive to the track, when Richard was an up and coming driver, she'd make loads of checks mix. And that's what the kids would eat in the car. So we had a natural brand match, a natural heritage match. And so we shot an ad with the whole Petty family about their their heritage. And it's uh, it was a great thing that got me. And I was at the track uh, several times and things like that got me to know behind the scenes, the inside baseball stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's where I got the idea of, wow, this can be a really great next step for me is to, to get in on the NASCAR as a marketing tool from the corporate side. And that, that's what got me looking around and got me into the new rubber. And so you reached out to someone at new Rubbermaid and said, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, it ended up being through a division of Noah Rubbermaid, and and that got me. Uh, and I was I started uh, as the assistant guy. They didn't put me in charge from the outside, but I was the assistant guy for the whole NASCAR program, and yeah. and, uh, and was on the road thirty six weeks a year. You know, well, that was probably pretty exciting at the time. I think the big takeaway for those listening, for military officers thinking like, how am I going to manage my career? You know, I, I he, Jungle Jim, I like to say it's kind of the choose your own adventure deal, right? You, yeah, yeah. You, really, you really have so much more more opportunity than you think you know about or, or, or that's even available and obvious to you, right? Before you started the NASCAR, you probably weren't thinking nor Rubbermaid and, and, and making yourself available, as you said, keeping your eyes open. I do want to ask you, this is kind of off the grid. You mentioned, okay, so Johnsonville. You mentioned culture, 
ethos, you know, you, like you said, you were going to be there, you know, a few years and, and perhaps go and continue to rise in your career, maybe at a different company, get experience here and go do something else. Yet you haven't left yet. Uh, can you tell us more about the ethos, the company, the culture, like those are the things in my opinion that are hard to predict and hard to explain to a military officer right? Because we, uh, company name, yeah, I'm familiar with the product. Uh, you know, what will I do? Okay. But it, there's so many other intangibles that hold our attention. Can you, can you tell me more? Sure. So at Johnsonville uh, and, and Tom Peters, was Tom Peters, the cult-like culture, or was that Jim Collins? Uh, one of those books we, you and I had to read back in the night, late nineties. Um, uh, Built to win, built to last. Built anyway, to last, right? yep. having a cult-like culture Mm. was one of the uh, foundations of the great, the companies that were researched that seemed to outperform, right? And Johnsonville doesn't think about it or talk about it that way, but we do have a very uh, uh, intense culture, uh, positively intense culture. Our owner, when he was young, uh, he came back, he started running this small company and in Tom Peters, he, uh, Johnsonville is actually featured in Tom Peters' video series and in his uh, book, um, not Built to Last, but the one he published uh, after after McKinsey. Uh, but but so Ralph was Ralph was this meathead in Wisconsin who got picked up by Tom Peters, and he went on the tour on the road touring when Tom Peters was doing city to city to city speaking tours, and it was because Ralph was into this thing that wasn't even a thing yet called employee empowerment, right? He, you know, it hadn't even become a thing yet. And, and it was this meathead from Wisconsin that had discovered it. So, um, and it made a big difference. And we believe that the people closest to the work ought to be the ones that solve the problems, right? The people closest to the problem should own the problem. Yeah. Our, our founding statement is, uh, you know, or, or our, 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 our statement is that at Johnsonville, it'll be a place where every member, we call employees members, are required, not just able, but it's the R word, are required to fully develop their God-given talents and help others to do the same. Mm -hmm. It is a place uh, where um, it, it, we have a, a statement called the Johnsonville Way, which anybody could Google, but it's not just something we put on the wall. People invoke this statement every day. If we do this, if we make this decision, if we do this action for our customers, are we living up to that? You know, and it's about personal accountability. It is about stretching and growing. It is about once you've achieved a short-term goal, uh, good for you, but you better be setting your next goal. If you're making a goal that doesn't make you say, I have no idea how I'm going to do that, then, then that's probably not a very worthy goal. And, and we've got all the foibles that any company does, but we have a set of guiding principles and an ethos that I've never seen it fail. I've seen several years ago now, but I've seen two VPs over the course of a couple of years let go because they couldn't live, they could deliver results, but they couldn't live our culture and things like that. So it's a place where, um, again, all the foibles of human beings, but we try to live up to what we say we want to be. And that's the beautiful thing in my mind about, about making a career choice and where you want to be. It's not just about, you know, some recognizable name or not, or what you do or what you don't, you know, it, there, there's so many other things involved, not only in where you're at now, Corey, but even in military officers making de decisions initially. I want to go back to one quick point that you made. I mean, you were, you were, you were house hunting for a job with a company that you were sure you were going to go work for. And you kind of, yeah, let me go into this last one and let's just see what it is. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, just kidding, deny, I'm accepting this thing over here. And that's like, that's the thing that is so hard to describe. So to hear your experience, 
really come through allows people to hopefully get a better sense. I mean, you, no one really knows until they're in the moment, but hearing you and your experience help, I think helps people to, to recognize that it's not just about what you're going to do every day when you wake up and go to work. There's so many other things at play. Absolutely. I'm going to change gears on you here. I want to do a podcast with you on your book. So hold on on your book <laughs> next time. And you already said, yes. Yeah. So here's the ask. Can we do a podcast on your book? Absolutely. I would love to do that. Okay. So I do want to talk a little bit about the book though, in this one, and maybe that'll just be our tease for our next one. Okay. Um, sometimes authors like you, I, I assume you weren't thinking I'm going to be an author all, all of my life. I'm going to write a book or, you know, and who knows, maybe you're working on your transcript for your, for the sequel. I, but, <laughs> but how did, how did that come about? Like, every, you know, authors have this moment where they're like, I'm going to write. How did your epiphanal moment, if you were, will come about in terms of making the decision? I'm sorry, this is a, this is a ongoing question because writing a book is not easy. Mm-hmm. Writing a book is brutally hard and time consuming and, like, why did you put yourself through that? Thank you for this opportunity to talk about it, because it's a, just as you described, it wasn't being an author was never a goal of mine. I've been writing down observations on scraps of paper since I was a, a high school athlete and dishwasher. I've been writing down scraps about leadership, wow. uh, then all through the Naval Academy, of course, where the, uh, the, the leadership ahas are, are intense and frequent. Um, and then as a, a young officer and then in corporate America, I'd just been jotting down. And during that time, I also started forming my own kind of philosophy. What do I believe about leadership? And when it was when I was in the, the uh, member development role here at Johnsonville, when I was, uh, I had connected with people through the, 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 the training industry in the United States and around the world and uh, found that I had some credible ideas of, of my own. And um, I realized I had something important to say, and it was as important or at least as worthy as anything that Jim Collins or Tom Peters or Ken Blanchard had said. You know, why not me? And, right. uh, so I did. I, um, and again, in Johnsonville characteristic style, um, we have a, at the time a member development center, a building that was just for members. And this is when not every home had high speed Internet. Not everybody had access to a printer, a copier. So we had a building that was where members could go and study. Uh, if they were taking night classes, they had access to, you know, uh, uh, the internet and printers, and it was just a place for members to develop themselves. So I would go there every Monday night. I'd, uh, on Mondays, I'd go to Subway and get a double sub, so I'd have half for lunch and save half for later. Yeah. And right from five. That, that is self control, right there, buddy. <laughs> 5 p.m. to midnight, and then we have a cottage up north, and every Saturday, my wife would drive me to the county library at 9 a.m., and I'd write in the library from 9 to 5, and the book book took about eight months is all the book took, but then it took me another eight or ten months to get the testimonials, to get it edited, to get a publisher and all that, so it really was a longer labor of love than I expected, and it, it took discipline, uh, but it was rooted in the fact of I think I have something to say. And and uh, and it tur- turned out I'm pretty proud of it. It, it. it is ready for a second edition. You know, some things have changed since uh, the leadership components haven't, but some of the contemporary stats and stuff. Yeah. But, uh, but the, the leadership stuff I still believe in. I, I've been leading in global businesses. I, I, I guess we haven't really talked about what I do today. I should have done that. Um, I lead Johnsonville's businesses in North Asia. So I have a plant in China and uh, a team in China that's just for China. Then we export to Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Korea. Uh, And so I have teams in all those countries. And 
I'm on the road 85 or 90 days a year pre-COVID. Uh, I'm over in Asia. And my, so my international learnings over the past six years have been, it's been a tremendous source of cross-cultural growth uh, on leadership as well. And will you bring, is your intention, if there is indeed a second edition, is your intention to bring some of that in? I assume. Absolutely, 100%, because it's a fascinating world where sometimes culture, and I'm I'm incredibly committed to cultural awareness. I've taken, I've audited UCLA courses on China, Chinese history and culture, Emory class on Japan, a Kiwi, a New Zealand professor on the 5,000 years of history of China, um, I, I, so, I, so I'm very committed to understanding history. I read, I read the Japan Times, the uh, Chinese State Paper. I read the Korean Herald. You know, I skim those headlines every night before I go to bed to see. So I'm very committed to being culturally aware, mm-hmm. in addition to understanding business. And it's fascinating, Pete, how sometimes it is important to be culturally aware, but sometimes business is business anywhere around the world and results are results anywhere around the world, you know? And, and uh, mm-hmm. um, so I think uh, there, there could be a whole section of the yeah, book. Some of that in there. So the, the, the core, and again, I want to, I want to do a deeper dive on that, but the core is this serve, build, inspire. And, and I'm wondering if you could just, I mean, this, I mean, we, again, we could probably go on for days here, but can you unpack that? Can you un- unpack the, the broad kind of guide of the book? It can be very tight for you on this one. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so I have had, as you said, this jungle gym or as, uh, this jungle gym career where I've been a military leader. When I was at the Naval Academy, I was leading a team of PhDs, and I was on the faculty senate. So that you know, leading PhDs is a whole different barrel of monkeys and a whole sure. different style of leadership. I can only imagine. Uh, yes. Business leadership, um, and. Political leadership. I was a minor politician for four years here in Wisconsin. So, and then human development and uh, training leadership. So, I've done these very different kinds of leadership. And I found that I really only had to do three things to be pretty successful. And the first one was serve my customers. And for your JO listeners, you have customers. You know, we, you may you don't call them that necessarily. Maybe nowadays they do, but you have customers who depend on your work product. Uh, you know, so serve them. And make sure they're achieving their goals. That's the first thing. No matter what you're doing, you have to serve. Um, second thing is build. Uh, of course, I, I had to take responsibility in all those different career paths of building my own skills and competency in that field. But then, as we all learn as former JOs, we inherit that sacred trust of building the careers of others when we're, when we're a leader. So that is very important. And then, no matter what role you're in and no matter what level you're at, inspiring those around you to become the best that they can come uh, become, uh, become something they may have never believed they could become and, and just uplifting the organization to achieve its goals. So that's where serve, build and inspire kind of came from. It works no matter what you do. I'm telling you. And I, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I would, you know, I'd wake, I'd kind of give my wife a, a nudge and say, Hey, let me just share this with you. And I, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the book. I've, I've, I've read it mm, a couple months ago. I reread the synopsis a couple days ago on a plane thinking, I, one, I was excited to meet you, but two, there's just some real pearls in here that I think military officers can use not only today, no, excuse me, not only in the future in corporate America, but can use right now this minute. I mean, like you said, it, it's pretty, I mean, it's timeless. Um, in that thread or in that vein, you've, you've hired many JOs at this point. I mean, probably, who knows, countless countless military officers in corporate from your position in corporate America. 
Can you share some th- some practical things that military officers can be thinking about? Not necessarily from a how do I answer this question or that question perspective, but more from a like what do you look for? What really stands out to you? What makes someone special in an interview? How does that work? I would say uh, many. So first of all, uh, Cameron Brooks sets candidates up because. M- you guys communicate that many of the things that made you successful as a junior officer would have would make you successful as a field grade officer and eventually if you did them right would carry you on into flag right so many of the the daily traits uh, that you're doing today you need to keep doing in the out uh, outside world uh, i would say the things that i look for in the interviews are, are energy um, one thing that i'm sure I've forgotten how hard it was because it's been a few years for me, but is to shake, shake off the military rigidness, the military, you know, we get, we get some guys that come in, especially on the operations side, people who um, I was lucky, my transition, I went from a, a squadron where we can be pretty surly and swarthy, right? I had that three year cooling off period, if you will, at the Naval Academy where I was around PhDs. And right. so that was great, blessed transition for me. Um, I would say in your interview, uh, try to be, uh, if you've been in a situation that's been pretty rigid, uh, I would try. I would say go out of your comfort zone to try to be comfortable and relatable. Uh, uh, be interesting. Um, be interested, of course, which is what I we say preach. that all the time. Interesting and interested, yes, sir. Right, right, but don't forego the interesting. You know, and, and to most uh, civilians, no matter what you've done in the military, is interesting. We're very blessed as veterans that the one institution that still has some great affection and credibility in our world, but the part that hasn't been totally probably soured uh, by the day-to-day social media and politics is the military. So they're coming out into a world that wants to appreciate them, wants to embrace them and, and, and benefit from them. You know, um, when, when we went in, it was funny. It's a very different world now, but when we went to General Mills, I, I got on a hiring team within General Mills and would travel with Jim Burney. And he said, you, you junior officers, you guys are a diversity program and here I am being a white, white male. We, you guys are a diversity program. And, 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 and I'm, I'm, this isn't exactly his verbatim, but he was basically saying, if I want brains, I can write a big fat check on any, any, uh, any campus, any of the top five campuses in America and hire all the brains I want. Mm-hmm. I hire JMOs because you're mission focused, you're team focused, and nothing will get in your way to keep you from, st- from achieving your goal. And I think all that stuff is still relevant about why the Cameron Brooks and JMO industry continues to benefit corporate America. I never, I mean, a light bulb has gone off for me here when you, I mean, I do say be interesting and be interested, but I never really kind of couched it all the way to if someone doesn't have military experience, there's a lot of interesting things that we do just you know, and, and, and again, I talk to military officers all day, every day. So I almost kind of forget that the people who come and hire who aren't alumni or former military really probably do have just a general like, oh, that's pretty interesting. That's kind of cool. Never did, never blew that up before or never flew that thing or whatever. So that's, uh, that's really good. I'm going to bring that on to some of my coaching today great. probably i've got some calls a little later today so great it can be as, as you as the program reminds us it's not a single-edged sword though it's it's a double-edged sword one edge is you got to buff buff some of those rough edges off when you're right. being relatable but the other the other good side or maybe 
double-edged sword isn't the right metaphor, but a, a good and a bad. The, the good is you are de facto probably more interesting than the dude or female you're sitting sure. sure. So they're anxious to learn about world, you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you mentioned, uh, I thought this was interesting, reading reading um, foreign newspapers and you know the Korean Times and whatever it might be. What are some other things that you know, and who knows, right? What are, you, what are you listening to? What are you reading? What are you investing time in that you feel like would be beneficial? I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're a high level leader at Johnsonville. So you're obviously invested in, I assume, invested in things that maybe aren't appropriate, but what are some appropriate things that military officers could tap into, or maybe even, maybe not even, maybe freshly kind of in corporate America leaders? So I'm so glad you you mentioned that we were going to talk about this because this is where the, the Cameron Brooks program um, really, really. Uh, so I graduated with a political science degree from the Naval Academy with a minor in French. And Roger Cameron said, God bless you. But that nobody needs that. What they need in the civilian world is they need to be able to talk the language. And I didn't want to finance MBA. They said, that's the language of business. You need to go out and speak the language of business, whether you end up in operations, in sales, in logistics, whatever you end up in, Corey finance and accounting, and not finance and accounting, but 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 finance is the language of business and you need right. to talk that language. So so that was the coaching that got me in there. And and his you gotta read uh Forbes or Fortune, Fortune, Fortune. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah Fortune every month. So here's how that here's the path that, that led me down that I want your JO audience to listen to. So audiobooks. I read probably five or six top bestseller business category books a year. Read five or six of them. I probably listened to a dozen more on audiobooks. Mm-hmm. And for your JOs who that uh, it's hard for them to process when they're just listening, if that's not their learning style, mm-hmm. invest a couple hundred bucks a year in an executive book summaries club where you get a book summary and you have access to their library of book summaries. Got to constantly be feeding that brain. Um, and that was something that Roger told me and that, and that the military believes in as well. But 20 years of, of just doing that has really made a difference for me. There are a couple of podcasts. One is called Econ Talk, E-C-O-N-T-A-L-K, Econ Talk. It takes uh, contemporary economic issues, business issues, and it's a combination of theoretical, what's the theoretical behind it, and also very practical. It's not quite as informal as Freakonomics and those kinds. It's really a little bit more intellectual than that. Fantastic topics. I would say anything by the McKinsey Company. Uh, they have a, a McKinsey China that I listen to all the time, but they also have just McKinsey um, topics out there about general business and, and big thinking. Um, I like the How I Built This podcast, which yeah. is by, uh, kind of an origin story interview with with the founders of great companies your your JOs would recognize, and that just kind of tickles an entrepreneurial spirit in you when you might say, "Oh, I can never do this," and you find out where they're where they started from, and you think maybe I can. Um, and then the final one I would recommend, and uh, this one I feel very strongly about, is called The Game Changers. And it was originally by Jason Jennings. And Jason Jennings uh, passed away suddenly about a year ago. And a guy named Dale Dixon tried to keep his podcast running. but but So they may find it under The Game Changers by Jason Jennings or The Game Changers by Dale Dixon. But if there are 235 episodes, they should listen to the first one and decide whether they're in or they're out. They're 20 minutes long. I listen to my podcast. That's another thing for your, I listen to podcasts and audiobooks on 1.25 or 1.5 speed. Sure. So I can, I can get them faster. Yep. And, and Jason's podcast um, is a, a qualitative MBA. It's not the quant part of an MBA, but over the 235 episodes, 
it is such a he was he, he calls him he and Jim Collins are friends and he calls him the him the more interesting Jim Collins like I'm the Jim Collins you'd want to have a beer with <laughs> he's a re- researcher but he's really just you know and, and Jim is a much more kind of staid and academic kind of guy but anyway so um uh, it's all research based it's great stuff Jason Jennings uh the game changers just I'm on it I'm I'll, I'm subscribing as soon as we hop off the phone <laughs> And is is that it? Do I understand that two hundred and thirty some episodes? That's it. They're done. Because he passed away. He passed yeah. away, and the other guy yeah. didn't. But but I still I go back through yeah. the topic. If I'm struggling with something, I'll search the topics and go. That's where it was. Like I just re- listened to one where um, it's called something about don't don't act like an owner. Act like don't act like an owner. Act like the owner. And it's him saying that mm-hmm. no matter what you do for your company, run it like it's your business. You mm-hmm. know, and I, I just want total to change in mentality. Somebody. Um, okay, he's cool. got six or eight uh, New York Times true, but not really, really true bestseller books too. So you know his books are all really great if you're looking for fodder as well. I think um, you know this. The, I asked this question a fair amount in some of our alumni conversations, and and I and 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 listen, it you really have to be committed to what you're describing. I don't, I don't, you know, we, you and I can say, you know, go develop yourself and be hungry for knowledge, but it really takes. It takes some willpower, at least initially, if the engine isn't running and it's cold, you can't just jump in and start getting after it. But man, if you just warm that engine up slowly, suddenly, all of a sudden, you know, it starts ruling, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the flywheel, speaking of Jim Collins, it's the flywheel concept, you know, start pushing on that flywheel, man, and it will roll. Absolutely. And, and your audience could very understandably say, Where's this guy come up with that kind of time? It's it, our, we become what you choose to feed your body with. And while I'm mowing the lawn, I could be listening to the radio, I could be listening to some political podcast, but instead I'm I'm trying to feed my brain. So it's when I'm driving to work, I have a whopping ten or twelve minute commute. So I, I listen to the books or the podcast during that time. When I'm mowing the lawn, when I'm putzing around the yard, you know, you, you can. When I'm shopping in the grocery store, I've got a podcast on. You know, can't do that in a small town. We I, people berate me for putting my earpods into the small town, but. Uh, but I'm down with the wash the car, cut the grass, clean the garage, like always have some. Now, admittedly, admittedly, I am a little bit, uh, you know, my guilty pleasure are those political podcasts. So uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway. Um, all right. Well, let's this is you're just an interesting guy. I really appreciate your time. Let's land the plane. I look forward to uh, doing this again, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, best advice time. And, and I mean, I mean we, th- this, this conversation is loaded with things that people can use right now to think about, to action on. But if you were to give best advice to someone who's right on the cusp of getting out of the military and coming to corporate America, what would that be? It would be that, so Roger, back in the day, <laughs> used to publish a monthly letter, uh, a monthly, and this was maybe even before websites, way before blogs. And one of his topics was, when to switch companies. Clearly he was getting questions from guys who had, or guys and gals who had transitioned and for whatever reason weren't happy. And they, they were like, should I transition? And, and I remember it very well. And, and he said, um, one thing was know you and your family and your, your wants and needs for the future. So know, know your, your why. We would, today we would call it our why, right? Know your family's why. Know yourself, know your, your, uh, your limits, know your strengths, and know your passions. And the third thing is what really made a difference. His, his third element was, and always be running toward something. Don't be running away from something. And, and so for your JOs that are on the cusp of, do I transition or not? 
Um, you know, if, if there are limitations or that there are things, that, if you think that corporate America is just a place where you won't have to deploy, <laughs> um, corporate America is a busy, busy place that has a lot of the same needs that the military does or a lot of the same decision challenges and, and work expectations and things. Um, but if, if, if you know your family why, if you know your personal strengths and limitations and, and uh, passions, and if, if, if you are, if you've read about the, the, the corporate America, you've been through uh, the program and it seems exciting, not just a place where you don't have to deploy right. um, and you've assessed yourself and you candidly believe that you're ready to go. You have no better launch platform than the camera books people, uh, you know, and that team is completely committed to successful transitions for the candidates. Thank you, Corey. This has been a, a wonderful 45 minutes or so. Thank you for carving some time out for us and uh, look forward to the next one. Uh, me as well. Pete, please give my best to the whole Cameron Brooks team. If you see Chuck through that window, wave and yeah. thank you. Uh, and, and the reason I think you and I got connected originally was I just reached out. It was my 20th anniversary of transitioning to corporate America. And I sent somebody a, a note back at Cameron Brooks and, and I really meant it. Uh, you know, that changed the trajectory of my life and I'm so grateful for it. All right, everyone, thanks for tuning in. I hope you really enjoyed listening to and learning from Corey in this episode. Stay tuned for the next episode. We'll launch that in two weeks where Joel is going to go walk through how to answer interview questions about managing projects and solving problems and then the differences between those two things. So that'll be on the next one for now. Thanks for tuning in. You guys have a great day.